Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Page 94, the Private Eye podcast, now officially with almost as many episodes as there are Lib Dem MPs anywhere in the world. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray and today we will be talking to Tim Minogue, who edits Private Eye's Rotten Boroughs page, all about corruption in local government, UKIP cooking the figures on corruption in local government, and casting an eye back at the most recent winners of the coveted Legover Award and Bigot of the Year Award. But before that, we start with an interview with the governor, a.k.a. the boss man, a.k.a. Uh, Ian Hislop, about the magazine's covers, why they haven't changed in 50 years, the way they can make or break a particular issue, and also why it's so important to routinely print abuse of oneself in your own magazine. Here he is. Hello, Ian. Hi, Andy. So the latest election cover is Cameron in front of his MPs saying, hands up, who thought I'd win? And inside there's a, a new poll shows Miliband ahead, right? Yes, we were fortunate with this cover because we have done election covers before where we don't know the result. Whereas this time, though, in fact, like all other journalists, commentators and pollsters, we had no idea of the (laughs) result and would have got it wrong. Uh, We were given a few days grace by our publication date. So we had a chance to get it right. Um, And of course, Cameron won. So it's fairly obvious we had to do him. And as usual with the cover, there's a whole group of people sitting around trying to come up with stuff, including new contributors. And there was a great joke from a member of the public. He just sent in a picture of Ed Miliband and his wife saying, oh, cheer up. At least we don't have to pay the mansion tax. Very good joke, Um, which I put inside. I nearly put it on the cover, but then I thought, really, you've got to kick the winners, not the losers. Um, that, That would be the eyes normal. Tradition. Yeah. So there are lots of things in the mix, basically, which they, it then comes down to one, which just sort of. Sums it, it was. Up. And there were loads of suggestions beforehand. I mean, loads of totally inaccurate suggestions. <laughs> there was thought of um, um, a Conservative leaving the government, if they had done so, oh, yeah. with a bubble on it saying there are no votes left, um, which would have been funny. But unfortunately, there were quite a lot yeah, of votes. Loads, millions. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they all went to the Tories. So. Um, we did a podcast about, you know, what yeah. what will you do next? Because it'll be completely different um, next time trying to do a prime ministerial parody with a coalition. And I said something like, yes, it'll be very hard. But of course, uh, <laughs> since it's a majority government, it's uh, a free to do whatever you like school. Uh, I have done a lot of polls which suggest that it is going to be completely different next time. So I, I mean, I don't want to call it, but um... <laughs> I mean, sometimes we we call it right. I mean, last time uh, we had a picture of the three party leaders doing that first TV debate with um, Nick Clegg saying, vote for one party, um, and the other saying, and you get one free. Right. Which actually wasn't a bad call. And you called that before the election? We called that before the election. Right, OK. Notice we didn't say which one of them you got free. Yeah. But you got one of them. <laughs> Does it sometimes feel like this is the first chance? For example, when there's a new prime minister. So I think one of the first ones with... Uh, Blair was a, a picture of him and Major. Major was saying, I told you the Tories would win. Does it feel like the first kick that you get to give? Obviously, there are more later. Yes, and also the first chance you have to try and guess the character of what's coming. And in that case, it was the feeling that the old Labour Party had been put behind us. I mean, so far behind them that they turned into Tories. But then Blair kept on winning and it got a bit more boring. Right. Um, and... <laughs> We knew what the election result would be. He was going to win again. The same with Mrs Thatcher. It's it's the first one, really, that you get the chance. After that, with those sort of steamrollers, you know what's going on. Does that become more difficult for the magazine in general, or for satire in general? Because I remember people saying in 1997, you should sort of leave Blair alone for a bit. He was very, very popular. Give him a chance. I think it's a very good opportunity when there's a change of government. 
I mean, when the Tories are thrown out and Labour get in, people will say, God, leave Labour alone. I mean, and, you know, what are you, Tories or something? And I think that criticism goes back to Harold Wilson. It's quite an old one, levelled at the eye. And similarly, when it flips the other way around, they say, God, what, you want Labour in again, do you? And you say, well, no, the point is we go for who we have got. But in this case, it's the same again, except without brass knobs on, really. It's sort of all new. <laughs> We actually have no idea what is going to happen now because we weren't asking any questions about it during the election because we were so focused on what might happen, you know, governmentally. I think that's absolutely right. Um, everybody was obsessed by um, how anyone could possibly govern rather than what they might do if yeah. they were given the chance. But I don't think this is unique to us, at private eye. I mean, I think the Tory party had absolutely no idea <laughs> it was going to get in. I would imagine for the next cover, I mean, we would end up doing the things that they've now got to do um, that they thought they'd never have to do because the Lib Dems would stop them, so they could promise anything. I mean, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of the covers in general, they are, I think it's fair to say that they are quite lo-fi. As in, until the mid-1990s, there was a stencil with the size of bubble that you wanted to use. Yes. Um, Is this a conscious design choice? I think it probably wasn't originally. I think it was... It was probably very cutting edge <laughs> in sort of 1870. But now um, I think it's part of the whole look of the magazine. And that's the, the definitive point of the magazine is you go and have a look at the cover and think, what's that about? And it makes a great difference, um, both to sales and I think to people's perception. If you do a good one, people think you're funny for months. <laughs> um, and if you do a bad one, people forget it very quickly. They're quite generous. Okay. Um, but it, you do have to turn out a few that people think are funny. And presumably some which are quite near the knuckle in an ideal world. Uh, yes. If I don't get any complaints about the cover, then I feel that perhaps we've missed the point. Oh, really? Yes, though I'm always surprised by the covers what people do find offensive. People got very upset during the war in Gaza, the latest war in Gaza, um, about um, the cover which was about there being um, light at the end of the tunnel and then uh, someone saying, but we bombed it. <laughs> um, so there isn't any more... Um, when that airliner was shot down, um, there was a, yeah. I thought, a rather good joke, a rather uh, pecan joke about Putin saying he was going to find out who was responsible and give them a rocket, um, which, again, a lot of people <laughs> thought was a bit offensive. But you can't tell. I mean, a man came up to me in the street, a man wearing cords and a sort of blue jacket, uh, during the time of the floods, and just said, you know, it's not funny, you know, uh, the floods. A lot of people lost their homes. Um, and I said to him, well, we've had covers about war and death and famine and plague all year, but you're worried about floods in quite well-to-do areas. <laughs> That's what's not funny. So I think people's view depends on their perspective somewhat. I remember we had a cover which didn't do very well in Ireland, which featured the Pope saying, I remember a time when boys wanted to enter the priesthood. Uh, that wasn't on sale widely. Right. <laughs> I remember the Diana one just after Princess Diana died, which I think must have prompted more complaints than any other. I might be wrong. Yeah, no, I think that was the one that, at the time, people found most offensive and were most angry about. So that was the, the crowds in front of the palace uh, leaving all the flowers, and there were a few speech bubbles. Uh, the, the headline was media to blame, and one person was saying, the papers are a disgrace. Another person said, yes, I couldn't get one anywhere. And the third says, borrow mine, it's got a picture of the car. Yes. I mean, I think the problem with that particular issue was attacking members of the general public <laughs> as opposed to attacking the media or politicians made people very annoyed. The suggestion that we were all complicit 
in the idolization, demonization, or whatever you will, of Princess Diana and the subsequent hysteria surrounding her death was not at all popular. And I ran pages of abuse of yeah. myself and everyone else on the paper for putting this on the cover, but I had no doubts about it. Um, I knew that's what I wanted to do, and um, I still think those issues are some of the best we've ever done. Francis Ween did the most fantastic roundup of the various fake mourning and the hypocrisies of a lot of journalists involved before and after. And as the years went by, more and more people said, I think he might have been right at the time. And as it goes into history, um, I think history will be kinder uh, to the eye uh, than people were at the time. Right. There is a covers library, we should say, on the I website, which has every single cover uh, ranked uh, with everyone who's been on the covers. So you can look up exactly who is in there. So, you know, Boris Johnson has about 12 covers. I think Thatcher has about 90. We occasionally just put text on the cover. I mean, yeah. that, the cover when Thatcher died, we had Maggie, 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 out, out, out on the cover. Yeah. And that got a lot of complaints as well, didn't it? It did, yes. Which, I mean... Relatively in- innocuous. Um, compared to um, what some people were chanting in Trafalgar Square <laughs> as they urinated on effigies, I think it was um, all uh, reasonably tame. If that's your benchmark of restraint, <laughs> then, you know. So, and also, so there was a 9-11 cover, which is someone leaning over to President Bush saying, it's Armageddon, sir, and he says, Armageddon, out of here, because, you know, he went to a bunker immediately. Um, I remember a lot of letters after that. What is the thing about printing um, abuse from people who really don't like what you've done? What I try and do in the letters page is give a representation of what I feel was out there in terms of people getting annoyed or furious or offended. And it also prods people into... Because people don't usually write to say, I think you're terrific. They're much keener to write (laughs) and say, I think you're useless. So it occasionally works in terms of getting a few defensive letters in um, saying, actually, I thought... That's what the eye was for. And you get some sort of debate, which is quite useful. The letters page, you know, in an old-fashioned publication like ourselves, is where this happens. There are very few uh, letters pages which, for example, after the Diana front cover printed letters saying, you lying scumbag shit, which stone did you crawl out of? That was the general tone. I remember that letter. I really... Yeah. Uh, I didn't write it. Um... (laughs) Has anyone ever tried to change the way that the, the covers are done? Has, has there been a brief spell? Because there's a Christmas cover, which is normally a cartoon. But has there ever been... Have you ever got the management consultants in and they've said, guys, we really should be going a bit more New Yorker on this? Um, no. No one's ever been consulted. Okay. Um, <laughs> the basic taking a bubble and sticking it on someone was Peter Cook's idea. And then he admitted it wasn't actually his idea. He'd been to America and seen another publication doing it and decided to steal the idea. So that's where that comes from. I mean, for a while, I was very keen on just simple graphics. So one of the most successful ones we've ever done was Woman Has Baby. And actually, this election, I was so tempted, because the timing was perfect, just to put Woman Has Another Baby (laughs) and just forget about the election completely. Um, which I think some of our readers would have been really happy about. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> Ian has a lot there. Now we turn to the murky world of sex, lies and planning permission that is Britain's councils. For many years, Tim Minogue has been writing about local councils, about their frauds and financial chicaneries and all their sordid bed-hopping antics in the Rotten Boroughs page of the magazine. Here he is with his latest dispatch and why he thinks that corruption in local government is never going to go out of fashion. Hello, Tim. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Good. <laughs> so you write the Rotten Boroughs. 
I, I do. I edit that. Yes. Yeah. And yes. there is a piece which is not actually in this week's Rotten Boroughs page. It's in. It's elsewhere in the mag. But it's about bent councillors and local officials. So Paul Nuttall, the UKIP deputy leader, was interviewed on the Today program. He said that there were lots of politicians who were just as bad. And for example, and this is, these are his words: uh, three hundred and nineteen councillors from all the other political parties have been convicted or stood down since the first of January this year, which seems staggering. Uh, for offences including fraud, paedophilia, theft, terrorism, and rape. Hmm. Have we left anything out? That's all that... (laughs) (laughs) It was amazing, amazing story. And um, this was in response to a story that had been in all the national papers a few days earlier, where a UKIP candidate had threatened to uh, shoot his Conservative rival, uh, who was an Asian chap, if that gentleman, uh, Mr. Jayawadina, uh, ever became Prime Minister because he'd been tipped. Right. He's been tipped. He's a bright spark and uh, okay. he's been tipped as possible future Asian Prime Minister. Mr. Blay, the the UKIP candidate, uh, promised to shoot him between the eyes and he said some other rude things that we can't <laughs> say in a family podcast okay. uh, if this chap ever became Prime Minister. And when Mr. Nuttall was questioned by this on the Today, he got, he got very agitated and he said... Basically, it's all a big conspiracy, all these bad stories about right. UKIP candidates. They're, they're not all bonkers. And um, other candidates from other parties do just as bad things. And and he produced this extraordinary figure of 319 people convicted yeah. and or having to have stood be stood down. We thought we'd have a look at this, because obviously I do this column. It's all about local councillors. And I thought, <laughs> crikey. You know, You've been missing a we, trick. We've been missing quite a few stories Because there are very few... Fraud, paedophilia, theft, terrorism, and rape. Well, they, you know these things. These things happen, but three hundred and nineteen, and because it was yeah. this, the figure was so specific as well. We we thought we should um, check it out, and <clears throat> I rang at Mr. Nuttall's press officer, who said, "Oh, well, this was um, based on uh, very detailed research, and we had a researcher working on this." And I said, well, "I'd love to see it. Um, <laughs> can you can you get past? Because I'd, I'd like to follow some of these stories up." And um, strangely, he never got back to me. But uh, we subsequently found out that uh, these figures were called from a, a website called Nope Not Hope, which um, really concerns itself with bashing another anti-racist website called Hope Not Hate. So this is an anti-anti-racist website. That's right. Okay, yes. it's not racist, of course. Of course, but it's it's but... anti the anti-racist website. Right. And they had just collected lots and lots of local newspaper stories um, and, indeed, stories from the national press. You know, the mainstream press who never write about these things, yeah. you know, the Daily <laughs> Mail and the Guardian and the BBC. Uh, well, they got a lot of those stories there. And anyway, with the uh, enormous resources of Private Eye, I, I set uh, a keen <laughs> young uh, journalist, researcher, who, who spent a day uh, reading through all these stories. And he actually came up with the real figures which were, he couldn't find a single councillor who'd been convicted or stood down for terrorism or rape. A total of four had been convicted for fraud, three for child-related sexual offences. I mean, not nice, not funny. Uh, Two for theft and two for assault. And then, to be generous to them, we included another 11 who'd been suspended by their parties over various things. So the actual figure, even going to Mr Nuttall's own source, was uh, 41 councillors who'd been... uh, convicted or stood down. But, yeah, uh, which is obviously a decent enough number, but it's not 319. Exactly. Since the beginning of the year Since as well. Since the beginning of the year, yes. Yeah. Okay. There are thousands and thousands yeah. of councillors, so actually 41 
uh, getting into a spot of bother is is probably what you you might expect. Right. Yeah. But you do cover a lot of corruption on local councils. A certain amount, yes. A certain yes. <laughs> um, you cover people giving themselves enormous pay rises. Mm-hmm. You cover people colluding with business for their own financial advantage. Yes. This kind of thing. Yes. Pay rises and payoffs as well. That's that's a. Uh, recurrent theme. Okay. Chief executives who are getting paid a quarter of a million quid and yeah. they get a big rise to boost their pension and then they retire. I mean, it, it's something that annoys the readers a lot. Yeah. But also, I think it's something that's not hugely known about. So m- most people, I think, have a much sketchier knowledge of local politics than they do of national politics. Yes. I think that's fair. Mm. And there are a lot of stories which are very, very surprising to people when you think these are the people in your area who are actually the first democratic point of call or the most yeah. local to you. Yeah. It's, it's surprising that more people don't know more about it, I think. It's a funny thing. I think the, the national papers are very London-oriented mm. and they're missing a trick, really, because there are lots and lots of good stories out there. And um, I think uh, Nick Davis in his book Flat Earth News noticed, noted that uh, Private Eye was now the only publication to have a sort of dedicated local government correspondent. Right. I'm very dedicated. <laughs> and the national papers, unless it's a story like the Donnygate scandal of the late 1990s, where a whole cabal of Labour councillors were, were convicted for fiddling their expenses on right. a sort of industrial scale, that hit the nationals. And then you have uh, the very recent case of um, Tower Hamlet's yeah. late lamented mayor, Mr Lutfer Rahman. Now that, that gets in the nationals, but there, there are all sorts of stories bubbling away, yeah. that, many of which are great fun to write about, <laughs> which, which the national papers ignore. And I think local papers as well are, um, I'm not going to say they're all um, timid or useless because they're not, but they are under terrific um, budgetary restraints. They haven't got so much money. Uh, They don't have as much staff. They don't really have the time to dig into some of these things. And when they do, it's good because they're on the ground. They they should be ahead of us because they've got the local knowledge and they can develop the local contacts. But a lot of local papers don't really um, yeah. do their uh, stuff on these stories in the way they ought to. And so that leaves the field wide open for us. When I started doing this, I think in 1999, I'd, I'd come in 20 or 25 letters would have come in and in the course of the week I'd get a few phone calls and I'd be thinking, oh God, what am I going to fill this up with? And um, it's partly because of the increased use of the um, interweb thingy uh, since then. (laughs) And it's possibly to do with the decline of the local papers and so forth, but there is an enormous number of people out there who are very frustrated about the misdemeanours or perceived misdemeanours of their local councils. And they have no... Other outlets, I, I, I get about, I will say 400 emails, tips and leads uh, per issue. What? Um, and that then goes into, what, six stories maybe? Yes. Now, not all those 400 are going to make great stories. Course, but yeah. I, I don't know, 70, 60 or 70 of them would probably be well worth writing about. So one has the result. One has a wealth of material to pick and choose from. Yeah. But you, you also kind of feel guilty because you're... You know, letting people not letting people down, but you're you're um, you're not, not able able to, yeah. not able to pursue everything. Have you ever considered splitting off and setting up your own magazine? Uh, oh, shush! <laughs> tell them that. It seems extraordinary the stories that 
do get missed by other people and do end up in rotten boroughs. There's a lot of outrageous behaviour by people, mm. which you can't believe that people would think that they could get away with. Mm. And is it, there is a sort of lack of scrutiny in some councils, at least, I'm sure. Well, a lot of councils are like one-party states. Right. Is that just because they've always been with one party or well, another? Well, I, I think that's a big problem. I mean, if, if you've been a Tory council since, you know, the Civil War, or yeah. you've been... Uh, a, a Labour council in the north. I mean, that leads to a terrible complacency, I think. And, and I think we've seen that in the way that Labour are suffering in the north. I, and I mean, in Scotland and in Rotherham, you know, where, where there's a terrible sex abuse scandal going on. You know, no, nobody was... Um, the councillors just weren't doing their job of kicking, kicking up about, about stuff and, and yeah. scrutinising what was going on. Are there any favourite stories that you have worked on? Because you do the Rottenborough Awards, I know this. Yes. At the end of every year, there's yes. an awards ceremony for the most outrageous behaviour over the course of a year. Outrageous? Or the most entertaining. Most entertaining, most all right. entertaining behaviour. Um, uh, well, it gives us an opportunity to have a bit of a, um, a giggle. La- last um, Christmas, for example, we, we uh, first, this was the first for us, we, we gave out a Legover Award. Okay. This was for the... Uh, Chief Executive of Gloucester City Council, Julian Wayne, who was um, he was realigning the management resource. Other people understood this to mean sacking a lot of people, and one of the resources he realigned was his girlfriend, who got her thirty-five thousand pound a year job deleted, but happily walked into a new job <laughs> that had been created, which paid sixteen thousand pounds a year more. That and, is a relief. Yes, and the, the only other candidate for that job who hadn't slept with the boss, was made redundant. And uh, <laughs> Now, we shouldn't say that these things aren't scrutinised because the, the Conservative leader of the council immediately ordered a thorough investigation and uh, they discovered that, of course, no wrongdoing whatsoever had taken place. Right. <laughs> but um, very sadly, Mr Wayne felt he had to leave and, and pursue... You know, his career elsewhere. Yeah. But this is another thing that happens, isn't it? Because people leave in great ignominy and then they suddenly pop up in another council, you know, not very far away, on just as much money, if not more, doing a very similar job. Yeah. Who else did we give? uh... Oh, oh, bigot of the year. Um, You know that guy for ramen? Yes, of course. Remember him? We should say who he is, the former mayor of Tower Hamlets, who has been forced to stand down in the last few weeks. After, after an election court yes. um, found that um, postal votes had been manipulated and undue pressure had been put on voters, i.e. particularly people from the Bangladeshi community. Okay. And uh, this this was not... I was going to say this is not kosher. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's definitely not kosher. It's definitely not kosher. Yeah. No, it isn't kosher. So, bigot of the year? Yes, now. Yes, his... Um, Councillor Alibor Chowdhury. It's quite interesting because Maury, the uh, judge in the case, had had pointed out that um, if anybody criticised uh, Lutfer, they would be instantly accused of Islamophobia. Right. Uh, somebody who who was uh, very keen on accusing opponents of racism and yeah. Islamophobia was um, Councillor Alibor Chowdhury, who was we described as Lutfer's principal cheerleader is a burly sort of chap and this rather misfired at a council meeting last year when um, he spotted a labor councillor called uh, Anne Jackson wearing a, a black dress and a black cardigan right and he he, he very wittily said that um, 
in the 1930s. The East End had uh, defeated the Black Shirts, and now the people of the East End were faced with the menace of the Black Cardigans. Right. Really, you know, know, cracked everybody up, really. Um, Unfortunately, Councillor Jackson was wearing black because she'd um, just been to the funeral of her... Ex-husband. Oh God! See, so um, right. Anyway, he he got um, he got our bigot of the year award. That's yeah. I think that's yeah. entirely yes. fair. But this um, is the thing, though. People pop up again and again in well, the Rotten Boroughs column, and they come back and back and back, time and time again. That's one of the nice things about Private Eye. Generally, it's not just Rotten Boroughs, but Private Eye has yeah. Lord Gnome has a very long memory. <laughs> and I don't know how many years ago now it was that Geoffrey Archer went to prison. Well, our late and esteemed colleague Paul Foote had first uh, written stories about Geoffrey Archer being dodgy, I think, 32 years before, right. in 1971 or 72 or something. And the good, the good thing about the eye is you don't have to have... I mean, it is, it is nice to get big exclusives and so forth, but um, you can keep nibbling away at things. And we first wrote about looked for Rahman in 2008. Right. When he was the Labour leader of the council. Um, and he was then kicked out, wasn't he? Yes, yes, he, he, he was later on. But he was the Labour leader of the council and he'd, he'd become the new uh, leader. And uh, he um, <coughs> he tried to get, uh, well, he did uh, get a, a chap in at a senior level, um, uh, an officer who earning well over £100,000 who patently wasn't qualified Right. for the job uh, but he was Bangladeshi and the the mosque um, approved of him so he hadn't been selected by the um, headhunters who were yeah. looking for this job but look for got him put on now if somebody's doing stuff like that you know that's a little a light a little light it's bulb. a warning flag isn't a it? little light bulb goes on yeah and I think the following year it was we'd written something about him and he came out with this wonderful quote about Private Eye. Um, was it filth? It wasn't just filth. It was um, racist, Islamophobic, homophobic filth. And no doubt, possibly arachnophobic and <laughs> agrophobic filth. And again, you, you realise you're on to something when you, you have somebody who is so thin-skinned and paranoid that they can't accept any sort of honest scrutiny at all. Yeah. And, and over and over again, his, his opponents were accused of racism. And it, it's, it's such a lazy, lazy thing to do. I mean, his, his uh, mayoral opponent, John Biggs, the Labour candidate, yeah. was accused of being a racist on you know, a man who's you know, spent his life fighting racism. Right. One really nice thing about this long memory thing that you're talking about is it feels a little bit like the sort of ecosystem of journalism, if you'd like, where you need to have all these little connections. The ecosystem of journalism. Yeah, kind of. You know, you need to have spotted all these little things because they build up to a larger pattern. And it's sort of, if, if none of that had been written or none of that had come to anyone's attention, then it's much harder later on to identify when someone's corrupt or when someone's been committing fraud. Well, I think I think some of these small details are telling, and and they a bit a bit like with with, with Lot for get, getting his mate into a job all those years yeah. ago. It flags up that 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 is yeah. a person who's and then worth you know, watching. The next time something comes and in about Lot for you, think, oh well, maybe this is relevant. Do you ever get thrilled when you see someone who you know is going to be very entertaining over the next few years? Because obviously, you would presumably like it if there was no corruption at all on any local councils anywhere. Or would you? Because you, well, you be wouldn't a, have anything to write about. No. It would be, well, none of us would. But, I mean, the, the great thing is there is always <laughs> is something to write about. Human nature being what it is. Yeah. This job always throws up something 
amusing. Just before you came in this morning, I had two emails within the space of five minutes. You know, the new government is going to be very tough on benefit fraud. Yes, fraudsters, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we, you know, we really don't like that sort of thing at all. And quite rightly, too. And within the space of five minutes from different ends of the country, I got emails about two newly elected Tory councillors. Um, I will, won't say where they are because you have to buy the magazine, <laughs> but uh, one of them uh, has become the cabinet member for um, uh, community safety on his, his council. And two years ago, this guy himself was convicted of benefit fraud, which is you know something they, they don't make a big thing about. <laughs> and then there was another one, a, a Tory councillor who was uh, just elected, I think, for the first time last week, um, who this week... Uh, has been charged with benefit fraud. Now we we won't name him uh, because uh, you know, he might he might yet be innocent. But uh, yep. it's it's just it's just uh, it's it's endless, really. That's good to hear from the magazine's point of view, <laughs> and bad from a local government point of view. <laughs> Well, that's it for episode 6 of page 94. We do hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, please feel free to write a review of it on iTunes, or failing that, to handwrite letters to 30 or 40 of your closest friends, explaining to them exactly why they should buy a computer and then immediately download this podcast. If you want, you can get in touch with us on podcast at private-i.co.uk. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.